Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nutmeg Book Drops High School Edition. I'm your host, Christina Carpino from the Essex Library Association. And I'm Amanda Ursinus from the Harwinton Public Library. Today, we're interviewing Ruta Sepetis about her novel, The Fountains of Silence. And we are so excited to have you here because um, your book, Fountains of Silence, has been nominated for a 2022 High School Nutmeg Award. And I believe this is the second time that one of your books has been nominated for a nutmeg, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I, I, I believe I believe so. And it's such, I, I just can't even tell you, it's such an honor and a privilege to be on the list. First of all, with all of those other amazing books um, authors are fans of authors you know <laughs> and and to see uh, you know the list of books and to know of the reader involvement and engagement wow it's really an honor we're hoping that this podcast really even increases that reader engagement and you know provides uh, the teens of Connecticut another way to connect with the authors and with the stories I know especially during the last several months, it's been harder to connect with others in some ways about stories. You know, you're not having those casual interactions in the hallway talking about, oh, what did you read? So we're, we're trying to find some new ways to, to forge those connections. Right. And I, I love podcasts. Um, I love podcasts about books. I love podcasts about reading and writing. Um, so again, grateful to be here. So I love that on your website, you have the tagline, Seeker of Lost Stories. And I want to know how, how you find these lost stories. How do you seek them out? Well, initially, um, my first three books had elements of my own family history and my own family stories. So i sort of found those stories from the inside out, but how many family stories can, you know, can we write about? Hopefully a lot. But then as I progressed into writing additional books, I found inspiration, not from the inside out, but from the outside in. Uh, the Fountains of Silence, for example, how did I find that story? I was on tour in Spain for my very first novel, Between Shades of Grey. And I was meeting with a bunch of high school students. I did a school visit at a, at a high school. And after the visit, the students pulled me aside and said, Ruta, would you ever consider writing about our history during the Franco dictatorship? And my first response was no. Uh, you know, I'm not Spanish. And they explained, well, we are Spanish and we don't clearly understand our, our history uh, very extensively that after the dictator died, they signed this pact of forgetting. Um, and they felt that they needed an outside in, an outsider to tell their story. So for that, for Fountains of Silence, it was readers that brought the story to me. And my upcoming novel, which maybe we'll speak about as well, also that came from being on tour and meeting with human beings who had experienced something that I realized, oh my goodness, how could 20 million people have this shared collective experience and many of us know nothing about it? So that fascinates me. You know, what determines how history is preserved and recalled? So sometimes it's my own history. Sometimes it's reading about something and the ways I prefer it most are when readers bring the stories to me. That's really interesting that they brought that to you and asked you to tell their story. Did you know much about what happened during that period before you started looking into it? I didn't. And that's one of the things that I found compelling. I have spent over a decade now, over 20 years, 
researching, you know, dictators and, and oppressive regimes and these names like Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, you know, we have recognition of those names, but I knew very little about the Franco dictatorship in Spain, even though Franco ruled for decades. And I discovered that I wasn't the only one when I told people, oh, I'm working on a book set in Spain, in Madrid during the Franco dictatorship. There were actually people who said, oh, Spain, I love Spain. You know, I love Spain. I've been several times. Remind me who's Franco. <laughs> and, and I thought, wow, okay. So this is not just me. Um, and so many people were affected on both sides, those who supported Franco and those who, you know, who opposed Franco. And so that, that intrigued me, these, these, I don't know, stories that slipped through the cracks of history somehow. I remember learning about, um, about this time period of Spain when I was in college because I happened to take an, an honors class with taught by two female professors, one who was Japanese and one who was Spanish. And they focused on women's rights in those respective countries. And, you know, th especially throughout the mid to late um, 1900s. And it was fascinating. And had I not taken that very specific class, I also would have never been exposed to this. I am so glad that you um, that you bring that up because it touches upon something else that is um, is happening is that studies now show that history ranks dead last as a college major that um, students don't feel it's an employable major and this opens an opportunity a huge opportunity for historical fiction educators and librarians they only have so much time and space to devote to certain topics. You were fortunate because this was a very, very specific topic in a very specific class where you touched upon this issue. But boy, if, there, if we don't have time in the classroom to devote to history, historical fiction, we have an opportunity to discover and uncover and devote stories to these underrepresented topics. And, um, and when I saw that survey, it just fueled me even more, you know, like, oh, there's really such an opportunity here. Yeah, I actually had the opposite experience of, I had no idea that any of this had ever happened. So when I started reading, I was horrified and started looking up, just falling into a rabbit hole of research and being like, oh my gosh, this actually happened, this is true, and I'm Catholic and have never heard of this. Well, so and that, that's also why when I'm putting together a book, I'm thinking of a reader just like you that yeah. says, I hadn't, or myself, I had no idea this happened. But to, to represent it, um, I always, this period in history or any period in history, I have to constantly remind myself that history has many angles, right? Mm -hmm. And so someone's coming to this history and you had mentioned, you know, from a Catholic background and I want to make sure that I'm giving a balanced portrayal of the history. Uh, so in the book, for example, you know, we have people who are supporting, in the, the, uh, supporting Franco, we have people who were opposing Franco, we have members of the Catholic Church who are supporting one side, and then there's the priest in Vieques who is, is helping those people there. And, um, and so I, I do feel it's, it's important to really, especially, you know, young readers are, are, are deep thinkers and feelers, and, uh, and they deserve the, the truth, and, and I want to give them a balanced portrayal. One of the things that we talk about a lot right now as librarians is 
finding good research and paying attention to where you're getting your information online. Do you ever talk to teens about that? I do. And, um, and the first order of business when we speak about research is to talk about the actual word itself. For some reason in my work with students, the word research, you know, results in eye rolls or, uh, or like a cringe or there can be a negative connotation to research. So instead, I say, let's think of it as investigation. And for some reason, that changes the paradigm. Um, (laughs) Research is investigation. And yes, I do speak about research and the quality of research and verification of research because even as an author, we bring our own assumptions to to these topics, um, what we might think we know. And the older I get, the more I realize, you know what I know? I don't know. I know. I don't know a lot of things. And also there will be people that you speak to who are so passionate about this time period and the stories can be very compelling. And okay, in the fictional portion where I'm creating characters, uh, perhaps I can weave in some compelling details, but you have to be very careful to verify your research. And I'll give you an example that relates to what you're speaking about. As you might imagine, in doing research, I go into photo archives um, in, in the International Library in Madrid, the National Library, and photos are so compelling and, and show such a side of the, of the history um, captured at that exact moment. But also we have to be careful because we might create photo fiction from something we're seeing because we don't have context of mm-hmm. what lies outside the frame. I saw a photo of, of a young boy holding a, a weapon. And in my mind, I created a narrative of child soldier in Madrid. And I cautioned myself like, okay, this is your narrative. As I was going through the box of photos, I pull out another photo, same scene, but from a different angle. We have the child with a weapon, but in the corner of the frame is a movie camera. Suddenly we go from the narrative of child soldier in Madrid to, oh, in the 50s, they were shooting uh, um, movies in Madrid. That is a very different story. That's a very different story. And so that's why for Fountains, it took me seven, eight years to research it. And, and even then, once the book is published, readers will, will contact you and they will correct you, which is such a gift because I'm writing about time periods that I didn't experience. Mm-hmm. And yes, I think really reviewing and questioning the research and where you're getting, you know, what those sources are, even the oral history reports in the archives in Washington, D.C., um, I questioned those and I would double check against, you know, oral history reports that other people reported. There was something I desperately wanted to put in the book. I mean, it was, it was a big wow. I mean, really. And you know what? One person had mentioned that and I could not find verification of it anywhere else. And so I didn't put it in the book, even though it would have been a really big wow factor. I couldn't. Thank you so much for sharing that. I just think that's such an important thing to talk about right now. Well, and I also want to point out, though, that it is historical fiction and every author has a, a different process. And, and it's all because it's fiction, you know, it's, it's, it's all fine. But I love to sit on panels with other historical novelists to see, you know, to see their process. And I'm known, they're like, oh, I'm known as being nuts. They're like, you're crazy. 
I will go to such lengths. Um, and as you may have noticed in the back of the Fountains of Silence, I share my research um, sources, hoping that someone else might find something that they say, oh, I, I want to read that book or I want to see that movie or, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I greatly appreciate that. I was always interested in history and I read a lot of historical, I still do, but I, I read a lot of historical fiction, especially as a teenager. And I thought about majoring in history and then I was like, what am I going to do with that? So I majored in English, which worked out a whole lot better. <laughs> see, see, there you go. And yeah. in writing fountains, some of the research was so compelling that uh, I was quite far along in the book when I actually decided to put some of the primary source examples interwoven within the text. Mm -hmm. um, so as readers, I don't want to you know, give any spoilers, but as readers are reading along, there are actual news inserts from newspapers. And some readers said, are those real? And yes, they're real. And hopefully they support the story um, in a way. And now some readers say, oh yeah, those primary, I just skipped over those. I just liked reading the story. I didn't really you know, want to read the primary source materials, it's fine. <laughs> I thought that they added a lot personally. Um, I always appreciate being able to juxtapose the, the historical, you know, first person type sources with the fiction and kind of brings the story together, I think. For, for me too, but also as a novelist, I'm always challenging myself. Um, I want to be consistent. So for me, I don't think you would see me do something that's so far afield. But I want to stay consistent in the genre, but also do something new and different, whether that's like in Salt to the Sea, I wrote from four alternating first person narratives or in Fountains of Silence, where I included these primary source materials, um, things like that. And historical fiction is such an elastic genre like that. I could write a historical thriller. I could write a historical romance. I could write, you know, historical war novel. Uh, so it's, it's really elastic and I kind of can branch out and breathe and do some different things while still staying in that lane, if that makes sense. Definitely. So like you were saying earlier, you included a lot of different perspectives in this. Um, I, I especially loved learning about the matadors and all of the training and prestige that went into that. So how do you decide which narratives to include? That actually comes as I'm researching. So my research process, my first step, or we call it investigation, first process in the investigation, I will read as much nonfiction material that I can get a hold of. That might be academic papers, memoirs, journals, testimonies, textbooks, um, nonfiction books. And that's because I need a base level of understanding of the topic before I speak to anyone who is a true witness of that time period. You know, just out of respect, you have to understand the, the history. Um, but then as I'm, I feel like I'm taking notes and I have a, a, a ground level of understanding, I move into the interview process. And it's during that process that my characters, a cast of characters, and a, and a cast of perspectives and historical angles emerge. Because inevitably, these people will be sharing their personal experience, their family's experience, and that gives me these windows and lens, different lenses into the time period. And then I, I, when I interview people, I think, oh, I could pull a thread from this person and a thread from this person. And if I braid them together, I have a, like a composite character. And that is one of the benefits I feel of writing historical fiction. I'm often asked if I would write historical, but nonfiction. And, you know, I, I, I could, 
But I think that in writing fiction, I have the benefit of creating these composite characters. And that means something to me because I feel like I'm maybe representing a, a broader human experience than just, let's say, following one character or one family in a nonfiction thread. A lot of your books are considered crossover novels. And I feel like that's one of the hardest things to do is to write a book for multiple age groups. But this is one of the only books on the nutmeg list that I feel like I would recommend to any adult as well as a teenager because it's just so accessible to any age. Did you choose to market your books to both audiences or was that something that your publisher suggested to you? I'm just curious. Yeah, it, it was absolutely my intention first and foremost to be a writer for young readers. Because these are underrepresented parts of history, it's our, the young people who will carry, you know, these fading stories into the future. So that was my focus. But yes, it was a goal of mine to create something that could cross over. And my initial reason was that I wanted young people and people who did experience that time period to read the book and then be able to discuss it together. And so I challenge myself always to write in a way that will be accessible to both audiences. And some authors say, oh my gosh, you know, what a pain. So you have to compromise on this and you have to, I see it as a challenge. I don't see it as a compromise, but I do have to say that I am so fortunate that my publisher, Penguin Young Readers Group, many moons ago, when I first started, you know, publishing with them, that we did sit down and discuss the, post, the potential audience and readership for my first book, Between Shades of Grey, and my subsequent books, and also my publishers internationally. I'm a crossover author in some countries, whereas in many countries, I'm an adult author, like in Italy, and you know, I, I, I'm not necessarily a crossover. Yeah. So although it was something that I desperately wanted, I really have to credit my publisher Penguin Young Readers Group, because I don't put the books on the shelf, you know, I, I'm not, you know, they are the ones who are um, very carefully marketing and their school and library department is so robust. So I owe a huge, you know, debt to, to Penguin. I just, I'm so grateful to be published by them. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say in, in certain countries, it's um, marketed a certain way. I, it's so well done. And I feel like both age groups definitely would benefit from reading um, well, your novels. You remind me a lot of um, Susan Orleans. Oh. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her, her name correctly, but I, I love her, her work and I love your work. Um, oh. But she writes, I think I would describe it as narrative nonfiction. So it's true stories that aren't fictionalized. So in my head, kind of see you as that, but with historical fiction. Thank you. That's a, a huge compliment. And with regard to reception in other countries, something I learned is that we all uh, perceive history and historical memory uh, and react to it in our own way. In Italy, for example, um, they simply feel that the work is too dark and too sad for young readers. And even on a podcast um, and radio interviews in Italy, they've said, you know, some of us feel that um, it's, it's a burden. This historical memory is a burden. And, and that's, you know, do we forget history? We've had conversations like that. Then in countries um, such as Japan, um, they've explained, my, my books are used at a collegiate level and higher adult. And they explained that it's a matter of honor 
you know, some of these stories, you know, might make people reflect on issues of honor and dishonor, um, which is, is very important to that, to the Japanese culture. And, and so they feel that perhaps it's more age appropriate for someone who's older. And it's, I've often said, it's just taught me that, you know, what's important is the reader's interpretation more important than the author's explanation, because all three of us here, we can read the same book and have wildly different interpretations of it, which is the exact same for historical memory and history. Um, thousands of people could experience the same historical event and have drastically different accounts of it, um, you know, based on their, their own personal experience. And so I find that fascinating. That must be really cool for you to see the way that each culture receives it in a different way. Oh, it is. And the covers, when I do school visits, I love to show students the covers uh, between shades of gray is published in over 60 countries you can imagine how many you know different covers and even for for the fountains of silence when you see the different covers they are drastically different and the titles um, the publishers in foreign countries they title the books different as well and I remember when I was in Lithuania and I saw the cover of Harry Potter and I thought oh, what is this book? And they said, oh, it's Harry Potter. I said, no, it's not. It has a different cover, a different title. And sure enough. So yeah, I think that's interesting. Again, the, the cultural interpretation, the country's interpretation, the reader's interpretation. So I know this was, uh, Amanda put this line in there, the, the opening scene that starts off with, they stand in line for blood. And that was just, <laughs> I mean, just right off the bat, you're like, what is going on here? Um, so how did you, how do you choose where to start your story? That's a, a great question. Thank you. And not only to start a story, where to start it, but how to start it. Uh, for me, um, the first line is very important, often because I'm writing about topics that might be a little bit obscure or not as well known. And how often do we open a book and decide whether we're going to read it, either from the description on the back, but then we open it up and we read the first couple of sentences. And it's either a yes or a no. And so I want to start, I want to bring the reader to the page and keep them there. You know, they stand in line for blood. And as my investigation and research develops, I come upon things that uh, are so compelling that I might flag them as, you know, where do I open? Where do I? And also when I'm writing, uh, it's a, almost a cinematic process for me. When I'm researching and even listening to a true witness share their account or reading a, a testimony, it's very visual for me and, and I, can, I can visualize it. And when I read a testimony of a description of this time period and what it was like in the line at the slaughterhouse and, uh, and, and it said, you know, something, oh, well, it's, it's time, you know, they're all going to get in line and get in line, you know, for their blood. And I thought, oh my goodness. But I also, it was important to me to open with the perspective of someone who was suffering under, you know, under this, uh, under this regime. And those are two of my favorite characters in the book, Rafa and Fuga. And really for me, if Daniel and Anna are the heart of the book, you know, Rafa and Fuga are the soul of of the book. And so I, I want to start out at that soul level, at that gripping soul level. And so uh, that's how I decided to, to begin that way. Was it also meant to connect 
with the idea of people waiting for children. Oh, I was curious if, yeah, that seemed very intentional, but I was like, oh my gosh, because you kept bringing it through the story. And I was like, yeah, they're, they're literally waiting in line on a list somewhere for a child to be given to them. And yes. And thank you for, um, for picking up on that, because I think I can speak for many authors that we take all this time and, you know, we're, we're thinking so deeply um, and, and doing such focused work on, on these books. And we're layering in all these things, not, not to intentionally use a, a literary device or something, but just because we have so much material that we want to convey and share. And how do we do that? So we layer, we layer, we layer, um, but you still want it. You, you need to use an economy of phrasing. You, you, you don't want it to be too heavy. Um, so many things often go unnoticed and that's okay. But then when you do have the reader who says, hey, so I'm just wondering, like standing in line, standing in line for a blood, for a blood line, standing in line for blood, you know, um, you, for your destiny in this case, for these two young men and, you know, yes, it's, it's that layering um, only because I think it's fun and it gives me an opportunity when I meet with students and educators to maybe dissect this in a different way because every reader approaches the book you know, differently. And I love those kind of uh, opportunities. And it allows me, like I say, to layer without being an info dump. And I'm going to use a musical example because I spent 22 years in the music business before I became um, an, an author. But some music producers felt that in order to make a song sound really big, they needed more instruments, more instruments, more instruments. But you know, sometimes it's the solo acoustic voice that is the most powerful that stops you in your tracks. So I'm, I'm a believer that less is more. And um, I, I edit my work rhythmically, just like I used to do with songwriters to help the reader try to get through it and create moments of, let's say, melodic impact. Um, and that standing, in, you know, and you've pointed out one. And so I, I'm so grateful. It's, it's really validating. <laughs> you oh, know, that, well, so thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that that is really interesting to know about you. And also it just makes a lot of sense because it seemed very poetic and lyrical the way that you did it. It was very haunting and beautiful the way that you have that first image. They stand in line for blood. And then when it's carried through in the next in the, the rest of the book, because um, you keep coming back to it, then you kind of just pick up on those layers and it seems like a poem that is being carried through and it just becomes more and more haunting. And it was just very well done. Like like you said, it was not heavy handed and, and just kind of like, just perfect. <laughs> Thank you. I like it, it, a lot. it maybe provides other layers for readers again, because I'm a crossover author. Then in book discussions, you know, one reader might bring something up like, oh, this really made an impression on, on me or stood out to me. Um, mm -hmm. But that's also the beauty of these intergenerational conversations mm -hmm. is that, you know, each side illuminates something for someone else, just like a book club. When you go into a book club and you have a, a conversation and you think, oh, wow, I didn't pick up on that. But, th you know, thank you for mentioning that. It makes me see this in a new way or, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that. That's something that we've talked about just doing this podcast, that we've been exposed to other people's opinions about the, the work that we've read and how eye-opening and, and wonderful it is to share all of that. It's, yeah. 
wonderful for the author uh, as well, I promise you. <laughs> even even the harsh critiques, even you know criticisms, um, those are so helpful, you know, for for an author to grow for sure. I definitely picked up on things being very cinematic. I I could see this entire book, like just it was so rich in details. And I has there ever been conversations about adapting any of your works? Yes, actually. All of my books are in development for TV or film or stage production or, um, and, and thank you for mentioning sense of place because I know for the nutmeg, you know, one of criteria is like a vivid sense of place and, and setting and, uh, and, and yes, currently, I, I can't give details, hopefully there'll be details released soon, but Fountains is in development for a TV series and, it has just been so incredible to work with these teams of, of producers, writers, directors, and to see how they visualize it and how they would adapt the story. And I know that many writers, um, my, my friends, they, they do not have film agents and they don't want one. They don't want their, their books adapted. They're like, oh, they're just gonna change it and it'll ruin it. And I know that sometimes we feel that way. We love a book so much and then we see the, you know, movie or the TV show and we think, oh man, no, the book is better. But in my case, because I'm writing about underrepresented history, I'm very aware that to share this history with a larger audience, film and television, that would, that would really help. And so it's not about me as the author, it's about these human be beings who experience this part of history and maybe feel misunderstood. And so I've been so excited to sit in on these meetings and hear how they're developing it. And of course they're changing things and big things, changing big things. And, and I just, I'm amazed. I think, wow, this is really super, super exciting. And they're talking about shooting on site in Madrid and oh, that's going to be awesome. Wow. You, and, and now granted, sometimes these things are in development, but they, they don't go into production, but just the fact that it's in development and, and it's being considered and with these such talented people, um, Sometimes I, 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 I can't sleep. I get so excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that is understandable. That is so cool. So I'm curious, has your writing process changed at all during the pandemic or affected the way that you search for stories or the, the type of story that you're looking for? Yes, it, it has changed in a way that I have had more, more time to devote to uh, drafting um, because the, my writing process, there's a research process. And I find that I can research when I'm touring, when I'm doing school visits, when I'm, you know, uh, then there's uh, a writing process and laying down that first draft. I need to carve out several days or at least a full day so I can become completely immersed in the project. Whereas if I'm touring, if I need to edit or revise, I can revise on a plane, but that process of laying down the first draft, first of all, my first drafts are so ugly. They're so terrible, but that's the hardest part for me. Revision, I love revising, but uh, so during the pandemic, yes, I have had more focused time. And as a result, I've started to work on multiple on multiple projects. I Someone asked me to work on a screenplay for them and I, I could. I said yes, and I helped them with that, and then um, drafting several different uh, projects. So for me, it's been a very productive time, but I'm very conscious that for, you know, for others, it, it ha you know, it hasn't been. Um, and also during the pandemic, I've 
constantly been reminded because I'm writing about history that, uh, you know, when I talk about true witnesses that for the first time, now we are the true witnesses and the students that I write for and that I work with, they in the future are going to be the ones that people come to and say, you experienced a global historic pandemic. I, you know, what was that like? And you had to wear a mask to school. I mean, it's, although we've endured it and, and everyone is being so resilient, it's not lost on me now as a writer of historical fiction. I sit here and, and um, make sure that I'm writing down elements of the pandemic. I'm, I encouraged, you know, uh, over the past year, students that I was doing virtual events with keep a pandemic journal, the smallest detail, um, whether it has to do with fear or something to do, you know, it was, you have to keep these elements. So I find myself that um, sort of feeling desperate not to move on from it until we really feel that we've, we've captured uh, what we've just been through. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's something that um, my husband and I have been talking about. People always say like, oh, I would be so cool to be a time travel traveler to travel back in time and experience such and such event. And really, we're all time travelers because we're living through history at every moment. But I think right now with the pandemic, it's never been more obvious that we're all living through this huge historical event. So oh, I love the way you've articulated that time. To, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned working on multiple projects. Is there any new projects that you'd like to share with us today? Yes, thank you. So I have a graphic novel edition of Between Shades of Grey coming out. And this was such a fulfilling project to work on. I had no concept of the amount of work and creative talent that goes into building a graphic novel. Um, the text adaptation was done by Andrew Donkin. The illustrations were done by Dave Kopka. Um, the coloring was done by Brand Livesay and the lettering by Chris Dickey. Um, so there's four different people and they were so kind and my editor and me, and, and we were all working together, you know, every step of the way. And I think for a story like Between Shades of Grey, just like the, the film adaptation that's out now on Amazon Prime, a visual representation of this tragic oppressive time period is in many ways more powerful than just the text representation. Um, and so I'm very anxious for readers to see um, the graphic novel edition. It's full color and I, I really love it. And then uh, I have a new novel coming out very first of the year. Um, and for you, uh, there'll be advanced copies, um, I think as early as next month circulating. And it's set in Romania and follows the story of a 17 year old boy in high school who's called to the school director's office. And when he gets there, there's someone from the Romanian secret police and they blackmail him to become an informer for the regime. He has no choice, he's blackmailed. And so he agrees to inform and, and, and inform on his parents. Um, he, he has a girlfriend, he has a, you know, and he decides that he's gonna turn the tables on the regime. And, and he, he in fact is, is you know, not going to accept this uh, fate. And the revolution arrives in Romania. And that story was, um, was inspired when I was on tour there and realized, as we've discussed, you know, 23 million Romanians suffered for decades and decades under this very particular communist regime. And the narrative that, that I had sort of accepted or, or 
you know, about Romania was so far from the truth. And I became very passionate about sharing the story, especially about the brave high school students um, and college students in, in Romania. It's so inspiring, their story. So I hope I do it justice and I'm super excited. It is written as a historical suspense novel where maybe it could be say that it could be said that Fountains is, you know, maybe more straight historical fiction or there's romance involved. I think uh, my new book, which the title will be released soon that uh, it's more of a historical suspense book. Very exciting. I bet we will have lots of readers clamoring for that one when it comes out, so. I hope so. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. This is really wonderful. Um, my pleasure. And I really hope that I get to interact with Nutmeg readers, um, you know, uh, over the course of, you know, the next, the next many months, that would really be fantastic to discuss books and writing and reading, uh, you know, with some of the readers. Here's, you know, if they have comments or questions, they can reach out to me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Ruta Sapetti's author and on Twitter and Facebook at Ruta Sapetti's. So yeah, I'd love to answer any questions they have. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much for your time. I appreciate it.